Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. On this week's program, conversations about ways to network in 2024 and why should recreational marijuana be legalized in Pennsylvania. But up front, as of January 1st, 24 states in the U.S. have legalized recreational marijuana. Pennsylvania isn't one of them. Even though legislation has been proposed for years to make recreational marijuana legal, and former Governor Tom Wolf and current Governor Josh Shapiro support legalization, it hasn't happened and really has never been close to happening. Legislative leaders, mostly Republicans, have opposed making recreational legal Uh, marijuana legal, especially since the federal government still classifies marijuana as a Schedule I substance under the Controlled Substances Act. However, several Republicans now support legalization. Recent polls show the majority of Pennsylvanians favor making marijuana legal as well. So is it just a matter of time? Where does the state stand stand on legalization? With us on the Spark today is Meredith Butner, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Cannabis Coalition. Ms. Butner, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me today. All right. So is it just a matter of time before recreational marijuana is legal in Pennsylvania? Well, I would argue it's past time for recreational marijuana to be legal in Pennsylvania. We're currently, you mentioned 24 states have legalized um, cannabis for use by adults 21 and over. Five out of six of Pennsylvania's neighbors have legalized cannabis for use by adults 21 and over. So it's past time for us to do this. Okay, so you say it's past time, but that's kind of an opinion. Let's look at reality. Is it a matter of time? Because the legislature is where the holdup is with legalization. So is it a matter of time with that momentum nationally? Yeah, absolutely. It's a matter of time, but it's also a matter of legislative makeup, right? So we, for the first time in in more than a decade, have Democratic control in the House. The the Senate is still controlled by Republicans. Um, Will that change when we get to an election in November? Possibly. Uh, But right now we have a House of Representatives that... You know, majority supports uh, legalization. Our governor is in support of legalization. It's the first time we've had that combination in quite some time, right? So, so it is a matter of time. But um, you know, I if I could will it into time, it would happen now. Okay. So when you say that it is a matter of time, what leads you to believe that, other than the political makeup of the legislature? Because there are some Democrats that aren't on board yet. Absolutely, there are Democrats that aren't on board yet. Um, I think public opinion, as you mentioned, at the top of the program is shifting as well. We know that the majority of Pennsylvanians support the legalization of adult use cannabis. Um, we also have been seeing some signals from the federal government that there is likely to be a rescheduling of cannabis uh, for Schedule 1 to, to Schedule 3 in the very near future. Um, a lot of my colleagues in the industry will tell you that we anticipate it happening here in the first quarter of 2024. Um, and I think that will shift the opinions of, of a lot of folks who are hesitant to do this while cannabis is still federally illegal. That has been one of the arguments against it here in Pennsylvania is that it still is classified as a Schedule One substance by the federal government. Moving it to Schedule Three, what does that mean? So Schedule Three, we think that what it means a lot of things, right? Um, it, it could create a lot of different pathways to to regulate cannabis. What we what we and kind of the industry and my colleagues feel is that uh, the federal government will continue to. 
um, more or less ignore well-regulated programs and allow states to establish their own rules and regulations, um, while perhaps providing some much-needed federal standards for consumer products. Okay. Now, you said continue to ignore. That's kind of an iffy situation, because when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, at one time, he said, we are going to enforce the federal laws regulating marijuana. There's a possibility Donald Trump could be uh, elected again in uh, 2024. I mean, don't you need, for legalization to happen in across the country, don't you need that Schedule One taken away? For there to be a federal program, sure. But I believe that, you know, state programs, as long as they are well-regulated, will continue to to exist, regardless of federal legalization. I understand what you're saying, but I mean, he, in Pennsylvania, that has been the legislature's or at least mm-hmm. legislative leader's argument against is that, hey, the federal government says this is illegal, we're not going to... Now, some people will look at that and say it's an excuse, <laughs> but that, that has been... I mean, that is reality, that it is a Schedule One. What leads you to believe that the Biden administration... I know that they have made some moves... But why do you think that they will make a move to uh, reclassify marijuana in uh, this quarter? So we've seen a lot of evidence of conversations between the FDA and the DEA signaling, um, you know, the desire for a Schedule Three classification. We also just very recently saw a reminder note from the DEA to Congress that they have the final say about the rescheduling. Um, and a lot of the back-channeling conversations that are going on between folks in the industry and folks in the mix seem to think that it will happen here in the first quarter of 2024. Let me read you something. Sure. I'm sure you're familiar. <laughs> with this, but uh, I looked at uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration DEA fact sheet on marijuana just this morning, and I have to say, they make this sound ominous. <laughs> All right. They say that uh, marijuana causes time distortions, illusions, delusions, impaired judgment, reduced coordination, which can impede driving ability or lead to an increase in risk-taking behavior, disorganized thinking, inability co- to converse logically, agitation, paranoia, confusion, restlessness, anxiety, drowsiness, and panic attacks may occur. That's just part of what they list on the DEA fact sheet webpage. So why would DEA ever agree to this? Alcohol is legal. I, Opioids are legal. I understand that. Right. So, you know, that's their that's their position with um, marijuana being on Schedule 1, which mm-hmm. Schedule 1 drugs have no viable medical use. So when we see the, a change of marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, uh, I think there's potential for, for those notes there to, to change. Were you aware of all the things that they have on their fact sheet? Yes, I hear from people that say all those things all, all day, every day. So, <laughs> so I certainly think there are. But, you know, what I also hear from is a lot of folks who have um, their lives have changed for the better because, because of cannabis. Um, you know, their nausea from cancer treatment is cured. Their child with epileptic seizures um, is experiencing fewer to, to no seizures, right? So, so despite the you know despite despite the side effects there that the DEA is claiming, there's a lot of good that comes that that comes out of it. Um, you know, and I'll say I certainly have experienced those things from taking an opioid after a surgery, right? So, you know, I do think that context is important when we're talking about those type of things. But when you're talking about, you just talked about the benefits, uh, sure. nausea and 
pain and that kind of thing. That's medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about recreational marijuana, maybe the big question should be, why should it be legalized? Sure. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? It is a so big question. So I think there's I think there's a lot of reasons to um, regulate and legalize cannabis for use by adults 21 and over. First and foremost, folks are already doing it. Folks are getting it. But you know what they're getting? They're getting a product that's untested and potentially unsafe. When you sell cannabis through a regulated market, it goes through a, a significant amount of testing. It comes in childproof packaging, packaging that is unattractive to children, right? And and you know you know what you're getting. You can be sure that you're uh, purchasing a product with a THC percentage that you're comfortable with, right? If you if you buy from the illicit market, you can't be sure what's in there. There could be pesticides in there. There could be heavy metals in there. It could be 30% THC and you aren't comfortable with something that's more than 7%. So, you know, the safety and the public health aspects of, of legalizing, are, I really think, are, are first and foremost. Um, you know, additionally, there are a lot of um, social justice and social equity implications here. Um, there are thousands of folks sitting in, in jail for um, low-level marijuana drug-related offenses. Um, in, in most of the other 24 states where we've tackled adult-use cannabis, those uh, wrongs of the war on drugs have been corrected. It's time that we do that here in Pennsylvania. Um, and lastly, we, we should capture the revenue that is associated with this. You don't find a lot of things where folks are willing to pay taxes, right? We're always, we always want to get rid of taxes. Um, cannabis consumers are willing to pay a reasonable tax to have a safe, regulated product. Uh, um, and, and I think that, that that's important when we think about doing this. Obviously, uh, you, you support legalization. By the way, who's in your coalition? So our organization is an industry association made up of the current operators in Pennsylvania's medical marijuana program. So we represent the grower processors, we represent the dispensaries, um, and then some ancillary businesses, including laboratories, uh, um, suppliers, transportation companies, as well as the clinical registrants here in Pennsylvania, which is a really unique license type that we have here in Pennsylvania. Um, Those licenses are able to grow and process medical marijuana. They're able to dispense medical marijuana. And then they have a relationship with one of the state's medical colleges, and they support the, the medical cannabis research at the state's medical colleges. Um, so, you know, if you, if you put in a Google search for Temple Medical Cannabis Research, Drexel, Penn State, um, our state's medical colleges are all doing really great research in the, in the medical marijuana space. If marijuana was legalized for recreational purposes, how many more growers would there be, uh, dispensaries, and would that mean tax money from them coming in? Sure. So that'll be up to the legislature, right? That So each state has done this a little bit differently. Um, at, here at PCC, we see a um, great pathway to use the existing operators to open up the market. Uh, one of the concerns when you legalize cannabis is that you legalize, but then you have no supply. And in the space between legalization and when the supply comes online, the illicit market flourishes because cannabis is legal and folks want a place to get it. So by using the existing 
existing operators as an on-ramp, we can get that supply to consumers as soon as possible. After that, it's really up to the legislature to say how many more grower processors we need, how many more dispensaries. Um, and, and states have done it, have done it very differently. Um, I'd encourage folks that are interested in that to look at Maryland. I think they've done a good job of, of laying out benchmarks to add licenses and also putting a focus on um, entrance into the market for uh, social equity applicants. So those that have been um, justice system um, involved and, you know, small business owners, um, you know, whether it's veteran-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, um, businesses owned by those who have um, had an experience with the justice system related to cannabis, Maryland has done a really good job to prioritize bringing those folks, you know, into the market with new with new licenses. Maryland uh, last year uh, legalized uh, cannabis uh, for recreational use, and about a month or so after uh, it was legal, I talked with someone in Maryland, and they were surprised at the amount of money they made um, in a good way. What do you realistically see Pennsylvania generating, the amount of revenue that you realistically see Pennsylvania generating from this? So I think it really de- it really depends on the tax rate, right, um, and, and how we are going to tax tax cannabis. Um, right now in the medical marijuana program, we tax the wholesale wholesale transaction between um, between the grower processor and the dispensary. Um, that those th- that tax has brought in a significant amount of money for the past several years. The Department of Health has transferred over thirty million dollars to the general fund. Um, so. So, you know, certainly that's only a, a population of 500,000 patients right now. So I, I think to say that it would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year is is fair to say. Um, but it's really important that that tax rate is in a sweet spot. What we find is that when the tax rate is too high, folks will choose to stay in the illicit market because the benefit to paying for that regulated product is outweighed by the cost. So we need to make sure that we're setting a tax rate that is low enough to pull folks in out of the illicit market, support the growing industry, but also bring in enough revenue to not only cover the cost of the program, but to to, to fill the needs of, of revenue for as the legislature decides to outline it. Let me segue to something you just brought up. In uh, a few of the states, I'm more familiar with Colorado and California. Uh, Since they legalized marijuana, there still is a black market because the prices that the state set are higher than what they could find, what someone wants to uh, buy on the street. And as you said, that is unregulated. So what's to keep that from happening here in Pennsylvania? Making sure we don't tax folks back into the illicit market, I think, is really the most the most important thing. Um, secondly, is to make sure folks have access. Right, one of the things that happens in these markets, maybe not necessarily. Well, it, it it's happened in California. We're also seeing it happen in New Jersey right now, um, where we allow municipalities and or whole counties to opt out, um, and and that creates dispensary deserts. And folks there are still going to consume cannabis. So if it's too far for them to go to the next county to buy regulated. Cannabis, legal cannabis, safe texted 
tested cannabis, they're going to continue buying it from the illicit market. So those are the two things that we really can do. Make sure that we have access for consumers um, and then make sure that that tax rate stays in, in that sweet spot that keeps folks in it keeps folks in the legal market so they get the benefits of the legal market. I have to admit that I have never heard the term dispensary deserts. <laughs> I might so, have made it up. I, you might have made it up. Well, okay. <laughs> we'll we'll be, keep that in mind going forward. But I think it's it's similar to when we talk about like a supermarket desert in a city or a pharmacy desert, right? Where where folks don't have access to to a pharmacy and they're driving county a couple counties over to pick up their prescriptions. We don't want to create that scenario with dispensaries. Either. Yeah, but there's a big difference, though, that sure. you need food to be able to uh, live oh, abso- oh, absolutely. where you don't yes. need pot to be able to live, <laughs> Absol- although maybe uh, some people medical, may. I would argue in the medical program, yes. Okay, the medical program sure. maybe, but yes. uh, for recreational sure. purposes. Sure. All right, so let's talk about some of the things that uh, the, the pushback on this. Uh, health experts, law enforcement, they oppose legalization. I'm sure they've done it in the other states as well. But uh, what do you say to them, I mean, Pennsylvania Medical Society, American Medical Society, say this is not healthy, can be a gateway drug, you abuse it, if, you know, marijuana uh, use disorder, something I had never heard of until just uh, a few years back, uh, there are a lot of people who are basically addicted to marijuana, even though it's not like being addicted to an opiate. Um, Police department saying, hey, we have enough problems with drunk drivers. Now, you know, you you bring pot onto the scene. It's going to be more impaired drivers out there. How do you answer those people? Well, first of all, I think the gateway theory has been debunked over over and over again. We we do not find a correlation between uh, legalization and the use of a, additional harder drugs, right? Um, and, and secondly, I, I'd argue to our friends in law enforcement, fo- folks are already consuming cannabis, right? Um, you know, and, and they're consuming cannabis right now illegally, um, but, but often responsibly. Um, so to say that just because we legalize cannabis that there are going to be folks that um, are currently consuming cannabis that all of a sudden start doing things like driving impaired, I, I, I think it, it is not quite fair. Also, through the legalization and regulation of, of cannabis, we can give public health officials, we can give law enforcement officials tools to to deal with these problems that are already happening. Five out of six of our bordering states are already have access to adult use cannabis. There are 40 plus percent of our population lives within a half an hour drive of legal cannabis. Those folks work in those states. Those folks play in those states. They drive back and forth across those borders already. We already have these problems here in Pennsylvania. What we don't have is the resources set aside to address those problems. Legally, those people are not supposed to cross that border, you know, buying marijuana yep. in, in Jer- at the Jersey Shore, for example, and coming back to Pennsylvania. You're also not supposed to buy, you know, liquor this in Jersey true. or in Delaware either, and people are doing that every single day. Okay, but does that – the law hasn't changed on that, even though it's large amounts of, of alcohol. Is that a reason to legalize it because no, other states are doing it's it? Illegal. I'm not. I'm not arguing that that's that that that's a reason. I do think that we have to consider, though, as, as five out of six states are uh, surrounding us have legalized that that our citizens are taking their pocketbooks, you know, across across state lines and and spending their dollars there. Something that you have mentioned, a term you've used several times in our conversation, adult use marijuana. 
how do you keep those under the age of, I don't know, 21 or 18? I'm not sure where we've cut off more than likely 21 since that's the drinking age. How do you keep those under 21 from using marijuana? I mean, obviously they do it with alcohol now, but uh, how do we keep from getting a bigger problem? So we don't see correlation between legalization and increased uh, use by by minors. I think you'll, there's a lot of data coming out of Colorado to support that. And you know, as the, the you know second or third state in the country to legalize, I think that's a great data set to look at. Um, there's a lot that you can do in regulations that certainly, as an industry, we support. Um, you know, which includes. You, you know, ensuring that there is age gating. Um, you cannot get into a dispensary here in Pennsylvania or anywhere else in the country without um, showing your showing your driver's license. Um, I can't tell you the last time I was carded at a liquor store. Um, so, so we have a hundred percent ID check rate um, in the cannabis industry. There was a study done in Colorado, or I'm sorry, California, a couple years ago, where they found a hundred percent compliance rate with age with with age gating. Um, additionally, in Ensuring that packaging is not attractive to children, um, you know, and 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 ensuring that there is there is messaging, you know, to children about the the risks and the harms, um, you know, those are all things that that we can do to make sure that we don't see increased teen use. I want to thank you for being with us today. We have less than thirty seconds. Okay. If you could make a prediction timeline for Pennsylvania. I'm really hoping that we see um, adult use cannabis legalization as part of this year's budget discussions. Uh, Governor Shapiro has indicated um, that he is anticipating revenue from adult use cannabis in the 2024-2025 budget. Um, It's time for the legislature to get something uh, on the book so that we can make that happen to support the governor's goal. Meredith Butner with the Pennsylvania Cannabis Coalition. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly. A digital marketing professional, motivational speaker, and corporate trainer discusses ways to network in 2024. You're listening to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. We've all heard the age-old saying, your net work is your net worth. And with the trend of entrepreneurialism on the rise, this quote is becoming more and more true. A recent study conducted by Vox Media found that while millions of Americans are still quitting their jobs in search of better employment, many of them are doing so in the hope of never having to work for someone else ever again. The pandemic has reversed a decades-long decline in the pace of entrepreneurship. And with a record number of business ideas, D's in 2021, 2022, and 2023, this according to census data that goes back to 2004, we will discuss this with Jabron Jones, who is a digital marketing professional with 20 plus years of experience and also serves as a keynote speaker, corporate trainer, and marketing consultant. And in addition to his IT degree, he is certified by Meta or Facebook as a lead trainer, digital marketing associate, media and media planning professional. And I'm honored to have him on The Spark with us today. Jabron, how you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining us. So um, so starting off, uh, the recent rise in entrepreneurialism, what's your take on this? I think people long for freedom. 
Mm. I think they we came up and you had to get a job and you had to do it uh, the the one way. Mm. And now with so many more tools at our disposal, digitally and in person, it's a lot more convenient to start a business. Now, when I think of entrepreneurship, I don't think that means you quit your full-time job. Mm. But you have some control over your income if your job does go away or you have the opportunity to leave your job. Now, with um, with this uh, quitting your job, uh, we we see it online all the time. Uh, pe- pe- people saying making 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 that leap of faith, making that yes, jump of faith. Yes. You know, what's your take on it? Because it, it, it's, it sounds like you're more of the strategic type uh, versus, you know, just jumping and hoping that the wind catches me, so to speak. Right. Uh, life is strategic. Mm. You know, that's how you end up in bad situations. So. I went to the military for a specific job because I wanted to work in tech. Mm -hmm. I chose my degree because I wanted to work in tech. Mm. So I kind of crafted it around that. Entrepreneurship is risky. It's a really risky thing. Say you're making tissues and you think you got the best organic tissues there are on the market. But now you're competing with Kleenex. Mm. They're not going to let up on you because you're a small business. They're going to look for ways to copyright infringement, patent infringement. Right There are different types of ways to get you out the way. Mm. You have to be strategic. Who is my market? Who am I going after? Why am I on these platforms? You don't need to be on every platform. Mm. right? Why are you on specific platforms and then only execute on that strategy until you find out it doesn't work? You don't need to be on every platform. That that's something mm. that uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs that I see really try to do. You know, they try to get on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. You know, in, insert social media platform yes, here, yes. and and they try to get on all of them, and then end up just kind of burning themselves out. So, what's your take on that? Because you said that you shouldn't be on all of them. Oh, right. Because at that point, you made yourself a social media manager. Oh, right? wow. Like, that's not your profession. You shouldn't be on all those platforms, especially if your target audience isn't there. Huh. Right. Uh, two years ago, year and a half ago, the big thing we heard when we were traveling the country doing our workshops, everybody's on TikTok. All the kids are on TikTok. Yeah. As a business owner, that's great. Mm-hmm. But the kids don't have any money. So it doesn't matter <laughs> where they are. That's not my target audience at this point in time. Yeah. You know, so it once it becomes... Um, not worth the effort to be on that platform. Have a presence, mm-hmm. but don't spend all your time there. If you're getting more leads from Instagram, stay there. Yeah, Post on Facebook every now and then. Post on LinkedIn every now and then. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to put the same amount of effort into every platform, especially with new ones coming out every day. So a tip that I got from Kristen there is disproportionate effort for disproportionate results. Hmm. And so if you're not getting those type of results, then you might need to tone down your effort and put it somewhere where you can get more bang for your buck, more ROI. Ah, for a return of investment. Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed. Yes, that's uh, that's one of the things I would always think about, um, especially during the height of my entrepreneurial efforts. It, it would be that ROI. You know, if 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 I spend X amount of hours doing this, I want some kind of said said output yes. be because my input, you know, is it, it's going to it's it's going to be uh, high level. Yes, sir. You know, um, so so uh, with with over twenty years uh, of experience in digital marketing, uh, how have you seen the industry evolve over time, especially now that we're talking about social media and such? 
I think there's more of a, not a divide, but there's two different sectors within digital marketing. Mm. And you have the very technical side, and then you have the public-facing side. Okay. So I, I include creatives in digital marketing. Mm-hmm. They excel in video production. They excel in the, the images and the titles and things of that sort, copywriting as well. Mm-hmm. Then you have the technical side, which is understanding the algorithm, understanding the analytics. I think over those 20 years, analytics are getting bigger. I think there are more people on social media now and digital marketing, but there's also more platforms. Mm. And so it becomes this thing where to be a professional in this field is almost to be like what I consider some of the more blue collar jobs. Being a plumber is a tough profession. You have to know what you're doing, but everyone thinks they can do it. Yeah. And I think digital marketing is like that now. Like, oh, I could Ooh. do that, right? Oh, I could do that. I use I use TikTok all the time. I use Facebook all the time. I, I could do that. But I think you need to have a, a seed. It doesn't have to be your number one. Mm-hmm. But to be in any profession, you need to have a seed of passion. Mm. Don't get into this out of desperation thinking it's going to be a quick flip. Yeah, it just doesn't work that way. You got to put in the hours. All right, and um, and I I, I want to go uh briefly back to this uh, um platform discussion. How how can an entrepreneur uh find the right platform? What what is it about certain platforms? Are are is there information that's readily available out there that help you find the right platform? How do you find the correct one? I think online there are plenty of people that will charge you for that information. <laughs> <laughs> they would love to. The truth of the matter is this. They don't know your target audience. They don't mm. know why you started your business. They don't know what you're looking to get out of your business. Yeah. It's incumbent upon you to go play. Mm. Get on every platform. Don't spend a disproportionate amount of time there. Post. What's giving you the best results? Where are you, Where's your crowd forming? Where are people mm. looking for you? That's where you need to be. Ah, so um, so for marketing, uh, uh, then when you consult somebody, what strategies do you tell them to, to to use to help achieve their goals without giving us the full game? Because I know that this is your <laughs> is your business. No, no. Uh, the the thing is, most don't have a strategy, so that's where we start. Mm. If you think about most business owners, big or small businesses, doesn't matter. They start with the tactic. Mm-hmm. So they'll enter the room. The meeting says. We need to do better on Facebook. Whoa. What goal is that tied to? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the goal we're looking to achieve here? Yeah. Okay, this is our goal. Okay, now what strategies are in place? And then those strategies ad- uh, address different sectors of the marketing funnel. Mm. This is a, it gets really granular. And most people aren't prepared to answer those questions. So the first thing we're going to do is get that strategy built out for you. Yeah. By the time we're done with your goals, strategies, objectives, Facebook may not even fit into your tactics. Mm. It might not even be the proper fit for what you said you wanted to achieve. Oh wow. 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 I'm I Listen here America. I'm learning <laughs> I'm learning something right now. Uh, uh because I just thought that you know you always go to Facebook. Like there's there's billions of people there are. on Facebook. Like that's that's what you start with. You know, that's your foundation. But there that's are. not necessarily the case. No, not not at all. Especially if you have like a personal page masquerading as a business page. Mm. There's a lot of back end things that you should fill out. They won't make you, but you should so they can verify who you are, that you're a legit business, so that you can post properly. There are a lot of factors into it. Everything is a profession. Mm. And so to go about it in that sense gives it the respect that it's due. So, for example, 
if I'm meeting with a client and they want me to do their creative, mm-hmm. I have to let them know that's not what I do. Yeah, I don't. I don't do creatives. I can give you some suggestions. I can look at a creative and, and kind of figure out what's going to work, and what's not going to work. But I'm not a creative. That's not. That's not what I do. I'm on the nerd side. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, you you did drop a bar there. You said a uh, personal page masquerading as a business page. Mm-hmm. How detrimental is this to your business? Because I see this. All the time. Oh, yeah. It looks bad. It looks bad, but you're cheating yourself. You're not hmm. getting the tools that Meta has available to you as a business. And so, because they just see you as a personal page. So now you can't sell on your online store. For example, hmm. if I'm selling candles and I have a personal page masquerading as my business, I can't open a store on Meta. But if I actually have a business page, now I can sell my candles on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, which is very big internationally, mm-hmm. all on the same platform. They'll put up a mini website basically for me because what you have to consider is if I find you on Facebook and you say go to my website mm-hmm. and I click the link, you don't know how fast my internet speed is. So I found very you true. on Facebook. You mm-hmm. want me to send you, you, want, you want to send me to your website because you spent the money and it's a beautiful website, right? Mm-hmm. I have hundreds of tabs open. If mm. your website takes too long to load, whether it's my fault or yours, it's irrelevant. Mm. I'm off to the next thing. What if I go to your website now I get a text message on my phone? Now I'm on to that. Yeah. I'm totally going to miss that process. But if you let me pay you where I found you, mm-hmm. you have a better chance of making that conversion. Oh, wow. All right. So um, you, you mentioned uh, these these tools uh, that that Meta um, has to help. And you do do this as as um, a business owner. And, and I do want to talk about that on the other side of the break. Uh, but first, uh, what tools does Meta have to 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 help you and your business? The biggest one is uh, Facebook Blueprint. Mm. It's self-paced free classes on all of their tools. And so you can get it right from them. Mm. How is how is it supposed to work? When are you supposed to use it? What instances will it not work? Proper setup. They'll give you all of that. You just have to put in the time. But all the classes are free, and I suggest everybody start there. Uh, before uh, uh, I, I ask about your business, um, what advice do you have uh, for businesses looking to adapt their marketing strategies to this ever-changing social media landscape? Do what works for you until it no longer works. Uh, just because a good a new platform comes out doesn't mean you have to jump on it. Mm. Maybe go get your username, establish your presence. I understand all of that. But you don't need to spend a lot of time there yet, hmm. especially if your audience isn't over there. It, it all goes back to your strategy. If it isn't in strategy, you don't have to do it. Just wait. Keep your eye on it, but wait. If it isn't in your strategy, you don't have to do it. Man, so many gems that that, that I hope uh, the listener at home is is picking up. Uh, so uh, ju- just to give them uh, a background, uh, more of a background on, on who you are and what you do, can you tell us about, about your business and how you serve your clients? So um, born and raised uptown Harrisburg, and my mom was in tech. So my dad was an educator. My mom was in tech. Always mm. wanted to be in tech. Went to the military uh, to learn about that field. Mm-hmm. And then once we were on our way back from deployment, I signed up for school to get my degree in information science and technology mm. from uh, Penn State Harrisburg. And then I got my first job out of college. Mm. And it was like, huh, this is cool, but this could be snatched away from me at any time. Mm. So the business was started actually as like a backup. Oh, wow. I think there's a difference between 
myself being able to do my profession mm-hmm. with the tools, reputation, and clients of the company that I work for, and me being able to do that on my own. Mm. That that's what makes me a professional. I can do it on my own, or I can do it with the company. Yeah, it was a challenge, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started Crimson Square in 2010, uh, and then as of last year, uh, I put Crimson Square on hiatus, and mm-hmm. I became the lead trainer for Bootcamp Digital. And that decision was made based off of working with them, mm-hmm. um, with Meta, and then also the vast experience and the clients that they have could really elevate me to the level I need to be. It's yeah. hard to get into bigger rooms from the outside. They're already mm. on the inside. I've learned so much in the past two years, not about the technical side of it, mm-hmm. right? About the business side of it. Yeah. Who do you want to speak to? How do you speak to them? How do you introduce yourself? Being on larger stages, being on bigger platforms, it's really been eye-opening. It's been challenging, too, mm-hmm. but it, it's really been eye-opening. Now, um, I, it, it, it seems like I, I have a trend here because yesterday uh, I, I was speaking with the executive director of All-Star Code, um, which is an organization that, that is uh, um, trying to get more uh, young black and brown kids, young black and brown um, um, identifying males into uh, the the tech field. So for yourself, um, as as a black man in in tech, how do you navigate that space? Being being this, you know, quote unquote, super majority. Yeah, I mean, super minority. Excuse me. First of all, I follow uh, All Star Code on IG. So shout out to them. I love the work they do. Absolutely. Uh, my son's uh, code for uh, Roblox. They try to code their own Roblox games, wow. and because I try to put it in them, mm-hmm. you know, to to be on that side of it. Um, I navigate it by just being comfortable with who I am. Mm. Some days, you know, be, you might be the only one in the room, but it doesn't matter because all these people are just people. Yeah. They're, they're just people. Most days I go into a room, I'm the only one speaking on my topic. Mm. And there's this pressure to uh, represent for those that I represent. Yeah. And that goes to the people I grew up around, my family. Uh, my wife and sons, mm-hmm. uh, any organization I'm affiliated with, I represent all of those people. So it doesn't matter what the discussion is about. I'll put my best foot forward because I know they will be proud of me for doing so. Mm. And I, I rarely see it. I think there's a, a privilege to it as well. Because when you're in a super minority and you walk in the room, many people assume you have to know what you're talking about. Oh, Great point. So I really feel that pressure, too. So I mm-hmm. have to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I love it, though. It's, it's a choice I made intentionally to mm-hmm. be in this world. I, I just love how it's constantly changing. I love educating people on it. It is fun. And and um and you are a a uh, certified Meta Lead trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, so what insights can you offer about the current state and and future state of uh, social media and and Meta? Be consistent. Mm. Uh, the, it seems as if, if you look at any platform, most of the algorithms are gearing people toward discovery. So it's not so much like back in the day where they just showed you who you follow. Mm-hmm. They want to show you everybody now, mm. which means that you may have to post a little more often. And some people think, oh, well, that means they're going to see five posts from me a day. A lot of people don't like to see that. Truth is, nobody cares about your marketing more than you do. You could post five times a day, and they'll probably see one if two of them, unless Mm. they only follow you, right? So you have to put more quality out. You have to put more volume out, and then let your uh, viewers or fans and followers 
tell you when it's too much. They'll let you know. So then what do you say to those folks that say that uh, social media is is turning into like uh, our our traditional television, that there's there's a bunch of channels Mm -hmm. and you only really tune into about three or four of them? Mm -hmm. I think that's human nature. I think it depends on who you follow too. Mm. The algorithm's going to cater to who you follow. So if you follow uh, All Star Code and, and organizations doing that work, you'll see more of that work. The algorithm is somewhat geared toward discovery, and I understand that, but it's not that random, mm-hmm. right? So you have to, at some point, take control over who do you choose to follow or what videos you choose to engage with, because you'll see more of that. So if it's a trend going on or something tragic happens and you follow it, follow it, follow it, well, now that's going to fill up your feed mm. because you're telling them you want to see more of that. So you just have to be more conscious about what you tune into. Mm. Your thoughts on this real quick, as a side note, did Al Gore create the Internet? Is that why no. it's called the Al no. Gore rhythm? No, 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 no. Listen, I was in the military. We know there's people so far away from everything. Yeah. yeah they, he may get credit for it. Mm-hmm. It was probably some E2 <laughs> making less than minimum wage in the basement somewhere. I was like, oh, I got to figure it out. Here you go. And he just put his name on <laughs> oh, 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 I had had to uh, had had to ask that. I had had to have uh, some some fun here. Um, uh, but but um, uh, back back to this um, um, marketing discussion. Uh, how, how do you see the intersection of of technology and marketing uh, shaping the future? I think we can reach our people now. I think mm. it's different when you had a few TV stations. You had to know someone at the TV station or have a lot of money to get on that TV station. Now, not only are you looking for, quote, unquote, your people, but your people are looking for you. And so I think digital allows for that, regardless of if you want to reach 50,000 people or you just want to do local and and get a strong 2,000. You are allowed to do that. Um, Unfortunately, now... Even with billboards, you know, I see people on their phone while they're driving. So, you know, digital is where everyone is in some shape, form, or fashion. Mm, mm. So, um, so as someone with an IT degree, uh, how, how do you leverage your technical knowledge uh, to enhance these marketing strategies? To get a better understanding of how to use technologies for specific purposes. Mm. Um, to notice small things like user experience, UX, UI changes on a platform, and see that around the end of last year, I believe uh, Instagram, Netflix, Patreon, they all changed something about the way their platforms looked, Mm. which is based on some type of research. Companies of that scale don't change things just because they look cool. And so it allows me to kind of spot those and then tune in to uh, places where I can figure out why they changed those and should I implement those changes on my side. Mm. So um, in your experience, then, what common misconceptions do businesses and business owners have about digital marketing? That there's a formula to going viral. Oh, oh, I thought there was. I'm today years old. (laughs) I wish there was. I wouldn't be working at all if I didn't have to go viral. (laughs) I thought I just haven't cracked the um, Da Vinci Code. No, there, there, there are some consistencies you should have. But other than that, really, it's going to depend on some luck, mm. right? That That's why going viral is so coveted, because it is rare, mm-hmm. you know? And then it depends on your profession, too. As a digital marketer, I don't plan to ever go viral. Mm. What I do for a living is not dinner table talk. Okay. 
So that's another thing. If what you do for a living is not dinner table talk, don't expect to go viral. Hmm. Right, go viral for the right reasons. You know, we can do all the latest trends and dances, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think I want to hire a dancing lawyer. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> Jabron, this was great. Thank you for joining us on the Spark. No problem. I appreciate you having me. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you for listening to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar.